Blog Talk Radio. Let's get lost in a better place. Pick up a bird, travel through time and space. So much to learn, so much to see. A chance to escape reality. Open your mind and your heart. For a fresh new start And a network will bring you there So let's talk about it When life and on the air Good morning everyone, this is Fran Lewis from freezing 19 degrees Westchester County And this is going to be great And you'll... I'm going to get the book in front of me so I could read it. And Neil Albert is here. And the title of the book is The January Corpse. Ooh. Dave Garrett is a disbarred lawyer eking out a living in Philadelphia as a private eye. At noon on Friday, a law school classmate offers him what looks like a hopeless investigation. Seven years before, a man named Dan Wilson disappeared. His car was found abandoned with the bullet holes and blood, but no body. A hearing is scheduled for Monday or whether Wilson should be declared legally dead. And I'm not going to tell you anything else because you're going to have to wait to listen to the interview. Good morning and welcome to MJ Network. MJ in memory of my sister, Marsha Joyce. (laughs) Well, good morning, Fran. So tell us, give us a summary of the book and how did you come up with that title? I have to ask that. Seriously. Okay. Okay. Um, the, the title actually was kind of easy because I had been, been around mysteries a bit, and I realized that there were people who would say, oh, the detective who writes the books with the colors and the title or the alphabet books yeah. or the whatever, that people couldn't remember the name of the detective. They couldn't remember the name of the author, but there was something of a commonality, like Sue Grafton's alphabet books as being the best example, of um, that was the hook. So I decided to do the months of the year, and uh, what it became was a series of, like, the January corpse takes place in January. Then the next month of the same year, the February trouble, uh, and so on. So it also, in addition to being just the kind of a catchy title, it reminded people of that uh, this is the order in which you read them, and it gave you a structure of you know January and as you know, uh, winter in the uh, the east uh, can be just a load of fun, and um, you know the, the climate uh, figures into uh, the months of the year as well. <laughs> well, we're freezing here. Yeah, and we had a yep. snowstorm, and I'm inside and I'm still cold. <laughs> really, I wasn't born for anything but ninety, no, but fifty degree weather. See, fifty degrees, you don't need a jacket. Nineteen, you need a vest at least, something. <laughs> So, <laughs> tell us about Dave Garrett and his backstory. How did you create this character? This is the first one in the series. That's correct. That's correct. And that was that was an interesting decision because I didn't. This is my first book. I didn't know if it was going to you know uh, go anywhere or not. But you know, I certainly had the feeling that boy, once you commit to what your series detective is like, 
you know, you're along for the ride with uh, his strengths and weaknesses and what kind of a person he is. And I wanted to write a private eye. Uh, I, I know lots of people write police, you know, police procedurals, mm-hmm. and uh, that's that's fine. But I just never seem fair with all the machinery of the state on the one side and the criminal on the other. It doesn't seem like a level playing field. So I wanted to just have one person matching wits with another. Uh, and that was kind of my starting point. And so uh, who's my private eye going to be? Uh, I thought about, you know, the classic move is the ex-cop. And mm-hmm. I decided not to do that because, uh, okay, I'm I'm a lawyer. I'm a lawyer. I've represented municipalities. I've represented plenty of cops and done plenty of criminal law. And mm. uh, I I like police. I respect them. They do a very good job. But they are a different breed of cat. Uh, they're mm-hmm. a very insular group. They refer to us as civilians. <laughs> we're we're on the out of that, and uh, you you can be around them. They'll lay down their life for you, but you're not one of them, and that's really clear. And I didn't think I could write a convincing cop. Uh, so what I can write is a lawyer. I've been writing. I, I've been a lawyer for many years, and that was something I could do. And then that raises the further problem: How is it that you have a lawyer? doing all the things that a private detective does, like, you know, in fiction at least, getting shot at and, you know, staking out uh, warehouses at four in the morning and chasing that people. And it's like, wh- how do you get to that? How do you sell that to the reader? And so mm-hmm. I said, well, what if he wasn't a lawyer anymore? What if he'd gotten disbarred? Okay, so he's thrown back on his own resources. He really can't use his legal knowledge directly. Um, Okay, that'll work, which raises the further problem. How did he get disbarred? Because if he gets disbarred for stealing or for, you know, something nasty, like many of my brothers and sisters in the law have done, um, you know, your character is not sympathetic. And we all know that uh, you know you're you know you're you're uh, especially if you're writing in the first person, your reader is rooting for your detective. They identify with your detective. They want them to succeed. Mm. They feel their pain, and you know so you got to have a detective who's sympathetic. And uh, then reality came to my rescue. I was uh, reading the, um, uh, with time on my hands one day in the law library, I was reading um, the advance uh, sheets, the decisions of the state disciplinary board. And there was a report of a lawyer out in Pittsburgh who, was, who, had, uh, who had been disbarred for taking the bar exam for his wife. And mm. at, that just kind of stopped me dead in my tracks. I mean, how does that happen? And, and I thought, like, you know, here it is. You know, the world has given me a great idea. So I created the backstory that um, Dave's wife at the time, um, you know, very bright girl, was, had done very well in law school. Her, her parents were very proud of, oh, my daughter's about to be a lawyer. Uh, and, but she has a test-taking anxiety, and she flunked the bar. Mm-hmm. And, of course, 
each time she takes it, she it gets worse and worse. She's just choking more and more. And she uh, she plants the seed in David's head. Honey, would you take the bar exam for me? Help me get past this. And, of course, he turns her down the first time. But the first time isn't the only time. She, she, you know, every time she, every few months, she takes the bar. She fails it. Things get worse and worse. And and she, she seems to be, she's, you know, she's very anxious. She's in therapy. She's even a little suicidal. And David says, "Well, I, I can't. If she does something to herself, I can't live with myself if I'm responsible for this." And very much against his better judgment, he takes the bar exam for her. And um, you know, so and they get caught. That's the end of both of them as attorneys. But it's not the kind of story where anybody's going to hate your detective. They're going to feel sorry for him, and they're going to be glad they weren't in that situation. Well, I have to tell you, that's happened. I have known people that do that. I had to take yeah. um, a test for my to get my reading license as a reading specialist after uh-huh. I got my master's. And my principal said, you're my number one person. You need to take the test so that no one could jump, jump over you or, or push you aside or say that you're not whatever. I said, I have the most seniority in this building, but I didn't care. I took it. But I do know that there were people sitting there. They check your ID. They check yeah. your <laughs> they check like your birth certificate. They check everything. And yet there were people that were sitting there that I heard them say, uh, my, my sister's supposed to take this test I'm taking it for her. And <laughs> believe it or not, uh, uh-huh. And I called. What happened was I knew I passed. I thought I did. And I get a call from the board. The board, you didn't come to take your test. I said, yes, I did. And I know the name of the instructor. I know the name of the person that gave me the interview. I know the name of the doctor. They said, we're sorry, you passed <laughs> It's like just send me the license in the mail. Yeah, that could happen very easily. Uh, yes. So and, why uh, were... <laughs> Go ahead. It's it's scary. Why was he in court? And tell us how do you declare someone dead if there's no body? You have to wait a certain number of years. Okay. Okay. Well, two questions there. Okay, the book opens with David being in court, and um, mm-hmm. he's not he's not a appearing as an attorney he's there as a private eye going to give testimony uh in in a case he's simply a witness and i i like that because uh i'm a lawyer i spend a lot of time in court courts are places of power they can be grungy they can be filled with all kinds of disreputable Mm. people but important things go on there. It's like an operating theater is to a doctor, and the the I, I uh, even though Dave is and Dave is court, you can imagine without even being told what's going through David's head with instead of him being up there at council table being part of the process, he's just on a back bench, uh, you know, just watching mm-hmm. and it's eating at him. So that kind of sets the scene, I think. In his mind, and um, the 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 law behind this uh, case is, um, I think it's basically the same thing in most states. If someone uh, disappears and is not heard from for seven years, uh, mm. you can file a case with the court to have the person declared legally dead. Uh, the seven years is, sounds kind of a biblical thing, but that's in fact what the the, the time is in Pennsylvania. And uh, then the court will hold the hearing 
Uh, it's a civil hearing. It's not a criminal thing because no one's being charged because nobody even knows there's a crime. Uh, like, okay, what's the evidence that the person is dead? Uh, has anybody heard from him? What were the circumstances of the disappearance? And uh, is it more likely than not the person is dead? And if the judge finds that the person is more likely than not dead, um, you know, uh, spouses can remarry, insurance proceeds get paid, and, uh, mm. you know, things things like that. that, that that's and, that's, scary. and that's what's going on in this, uh, in this case, is that uh, something I really wanted to do is crank up the... Um, you know the the pace of the case that instead of this being this leisurely investigation that can take months mm. it's friday afternoon and dave is supposed to stand up in court on monday and offer testimony on uh, what he has found out so he's got <laughs> he's got uh, two and a half days to figure this thing out and the trail is very cold then I know. I also, if you ever, if, if you ever saw what I did to your book, you'd know I really read it. Um, I write, okay. I circle, I underline, I cross out. I write Q for questions, Y for why. <laughs> it's, it's destroyed. But somebody oh. actually wants to read it, so they're getting it anyway. However, I, I give away my books. Okay. And, yeah, I have neighbors that just take them all of a sudden. I just leave them outside my door. They're gone. So ah. this is another, yeah. So who is Dan Wilson, and what was the law firm that he worked for? Sure. Because he's okay. a prime person here. Yes. Dan Wilson is the person who disappeared. And, of course, um, you know, at the start of the book, he's just a name to Dave. Dave did not know this guy. He's just the subject of the assignment. Uh, Dan was, was a lawyer. And uh, he, he's roughly Dave's age, and uh, but uh, they did not know each other. Went to different law schools. Um, he um, was a kind of quiet uh, fellow. He he did his job, and on the weekends, um, nobody seems to know quite what he did. He had he was not not exactly a loner, but hardly the 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 you know the the you know the center of a big social circle, and so. Um, uh, he David is left with. Uh, it's hard to even research this person, especially after mm. all this time. Um, but um, that's that's who Dan that's who Dan is. And matter of fact, the lawyer who's hired David to uh, mm. investigate Dan's disappearance doesn't even know him either. He's just been hired by the family. I mean, there's um, at, at the start, David is at a loss to find anyone who even re- remembers, uh, knew this guy, and uh, that's what he starts off with, like, trying to find someone. And uh, he, he gets lucky. He goes to the old neighborhood where Dan used to live, and after knocking on enough doors, uh, this is a detail that will <laughs> resonate with you on a day like this. Uh, it's freezing cold in Philadelphia in January, and he knocks on one door after the other, and he finds a an elderly black gentleman who has the house across the street, and um, uh, if you've ever lived in a you know in a row house type neighborhood, there's always people mm-hmm. who stoop sit and are watch looking across the street and 
they know they know when people come. They know when people go. They know who showed up. They uh, you know they, they may not tell anybody any of this, but they're like they're better than door cameras as far as uh, knowing what happens on the street. Well, I go up in the South Bronx, and yeah, I know. Yep. And yep, that's people, exactly. There, it. there was. Yeah, well, there was. They didn't have steps to stoop because the building was older than all of us together forever. But around the corner, they had a guy that shined shoes. My father said, so they used to yeah. sit and rap and well, get your shoes signed and chew the fat. That's what he touched. What he told me. So, Dave, Dave, how did how did he get a fee? What did he charge? And why would they pay it? And why did he take the case? I mean, seriously, sure. this family wasn't exactly somebody that he wanted to know. I guess. No. Well, it, it all starts. Uh, his contact with the with the, the case initially is that a um, an old law school classmate of his, a guy named Mark Laux, um, was uh, kind of mm-hmm. you know grabs kind of buttonholes David in the corridor uh, and says um, asks him to take the case, and um, Dave doesn't. He's he's. Mark Louts is no friend of his. They they know each mm-hmm. other professionally. When Dave was begging for, to keep his law license, he asked everybody he knew to please write a letter of support to the state Supreme Court, and Mark was one of the many people who didn't want to get involved. And uh, now, okay, and uh, we all know how that ended up, and now Mark has come to David begging for a favor, not just will you please take on this case, but will mm. you take on this you know, ridiculously unpromising case and spend the weekend on it and then come in on Monday. And, and, and it's like, and it's like uh, so D- Dave's, Dave is really inclined to blow him off. But uh, Dave is also hungry. Uh, he doesn't get a lot. You know, he's... Yeah, he's not terribly established in the business. One of the uh, themes in the whole series is David's living from paycheck to paycheck. He's not a wealthy, Mm. established guy. Uh, And, um, you know, it's a client, and uh, he has locks over a barrel financially, and he charges several times. Instead of charging his private eye rate, he charges his lawyer rate, which is considerably higher. And um, Lauk swallows and says, well, I guess so. I don't have any choice. And so it's it's almost like Lauk calls his bluff. David is saying, if you're going to pay me my legal rate to do investigator's work, I'll take the case. And Lauk says, okay. And all right. Well, I guess I'm stuck with it now. Dave says, and uh, that's that. That's how the case. Uh, that's how his uh, involvement with the case begins. Uh, Dave doesn't actually get a retainer from Laux, but uh, there is a fee agreement that uh, Dave will be paid for his time. That that's that's amazing. Um, I can't say what I think about lawyers this week because. I've been dealing with some for ten years, and what can I say? <laughs> okay. Um, well, uh, yeah. We, we, what happens? We see seriously speaking, worst, let's uh, say this case goes to court. What happens? Yeah. This just hypothetical. Like I, I have yeah. to ask this question because it's been bothering me. What happens if you have a case like for a lot of years? The plaintiff drops the case and agrees to pay, even though they don't have to, the expenses of the of the lawyer that 
didn't do a very good job representing them. Why would the, the why isn't why is that case still on the court docket when the, the plaintiff dropped it three months ago, and now the the lawyer is saying, well, I didn't know that. I said I told I didn't have it in writing. Can they can they keep that on the court docket even though the case is dropped? Shouldn't that be gone? Okay. All right. Well, there's there's you kind of asked a twofold question there. Once a lawsuit yeah. is filed. It, it's on the docket. I mean, it gets a term and number. It's there forever. Um, the yeah, status of the case uh, can be active or it's been withdrawn, settled, or something like that. Um, so once a case is is settled, terminated, dismissed, or whatever, uh, the court clerk will note that in the docket. Uh, but, you know, the, the case... The existence of the case never goes away. You can always look it up and see, you know, follow down the activity, and the the last thing would be case dismissed or whatever. Yeah, I did that, and the um, lawyer for the other side decided to do a grandstand and pretend that they didn't know that this was happening, and they this court this thing is still on the docket, and I don't intend to be there because I dropped the case and I said I'll pay whatever. So I'm learning. So Dave goes, who who is Harrison, and what does he tell Dave? Because Dave has to meet a lot of people. And then what about, this was the interesting part, the Pennsylvania bank. How do you investigate a bank if you don't have the permission to investigate the the funds or the accounts? Sure, okay. Harrison is the stoop sitter I mentioned. He's this uh, elderly Mm -hmm. black gentleman who um, um, just, you know, he's disabled and, uh, you know, likes to, you know, have that, that's what he does all day is watch the street. And um, mm. he, he gives Dave some general background about Wilson that, like, which kind of adds to the puzzlement in a way that, uh, you know, he, he learns mm. more about Wilson as a person, but also learns that, that he was kind of secretive, that he was, uh, mm. didn't have a lot of parties, lived quietly, went out of town a lot. Um, was seen sometimes with one girl, sometimes with another, but like, you know, just you know, for someone who lived across the street, um, Harrison doesn't really, you know, they, they weren't buddies. They kind of, you know, nodded to each other. One time Wilson dug Harrison out of the snow with his, his car, and that was kind of about it. Um, but that's that's as much. But it's that's kind of my teaser. Like this is the first thing Garrett mm. finds out that at least at least he's got somebody who had eyes on Wilson that he that he really um, really existed. And um, the um, uh, you know that was that that's kind of my start with that. But uh, then then uh, Garrett gets a stroke of luck. He has some time to kill when he goes by a bank, uh, a branch bank nearby, and mm. um, uh, he, uh, he's just on a, he's, he has time to kill, and sometimes Garrett just makes his own luck like we all do, and he goes into the bank, and it's this very historic bank with brass chandeliers, and mm. lawyers, lawyers are suckers for tradition. I mean, if, if we have a chance to go into, you know, do our business in an old building rather than some kind of chrome and glass uh, modern thing, it's like, yeah, we, we, we like that stuff. And uh, so Garrett figures that Dan Wilson had done his banking there, and um, goes in and sort of bluffs the, uh, uh, the head teller, 
And um, w- without asking for any information about the details of um, Wilson's uh, financial, how much did he withdraw this day, uh, he gets a general conversation that really – perks everybody's interest up because um, uh, she she mentions that uh, Wilson had um, a safe deposit box, okay, mm. and he he had the really big the biggest one you could get. And it's like okay, and it's like hey, you know, Wilson's he's he's not a family man. He doesn't have a lot of thing. I mean, like why would he have an enormous safe deposit box? I was like. There's a question everybody asked. And, and, and then, of course, the day Wilson disappeared, uh, Garrett uh, finds out that, uh, she, that Wilson came in, went through his deposit box, and, uh, of course, you know, she wasn't present when he uh, went through the box. He had a private room. Mm. But when he left, he had a really heavy suitcase. <laughs> and it's like, oh, my goodness. Mm. Okay. And uh, this reminded me, I, I took this detail from, uh, are you, you're, you're a New Yorker. Are you familiar with Judge Crater? Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> ah, okay, very good. Yes, Judge Crater, for the benefit of our uh, listeners who don't know, was a judge back in the uh, 20s, 30, 20, I think the late mm-hmm. 20s, uh, who um, was implicated in a number of scandals, uh, but there was, uh, you know, he, he, he kind of had his finger in a number of pies. He was an old-fashioned Tammany Hall sort of uh, machine politician. And um, one, he, he disappeared and uh, has never turned up. And uh, the day he disappeared, he had gone to a bank and filled up uh, several briefcases full of papers, presumably incriminating documents and money, and he and the the, the, the the two briefcases disappeared, and I always love that detail because it just it just says so much. You don't have anything specific, but you just know that that this this fella is is scared. He's on the run. He and it's like it tells you. It, it, it's just a signal for all those things. And I I, I borrow that Judge Crater touch uh, from uh, for my story. <laughs> And what happens, I mean, the person, he does his, all those papers, comes out with his big bag of stuff. I know when my sister died, I had to go to the bank to get um, certain jewelry and stuff out of her, out of a safety deposit box. And her ex, the, the person she was married to, unfortunately, was there. I said, you're not invited to come in because I'm the only one on the name of the box. So yeah. don't, don't they, don't you have to prove that you have permission or so or that you're on the on the name of the box, so that you before you could go in and look at it. Well, it is Dan. It was Dan Wilson's box, so no one would stop yeah. in there. Now, in your situation, you had something a little bit different because it was your sister who was deceased. Yeah, she died under strange circumstances. We're still wondering. Uh, yeah, and oh, he came in and wh- he said she left the will in the box. I didn't know that. I know what was in there. I know that my mom died after her, but we were holding her jewelry in my sister's death safety deposit box. So he came in with me, and I said, this all goes to me, and the will goes to my niece. And he grabbed it out of my hand. I said, that's not going to work. He he didn't even pay for my sister's funeral, to be honest. I did. So Mm. it's like, yeah, you have to – I mean, nobody looks – if you're going in, and I said to the guy from the bank, just me – 
I don't know why the guy from the bank let him in. That shouldn't happen, right? Just the person well, okay. whose name is on the card. Okay. Well, um, yeah, I can't speak to how they do it in New York uh, when there's a decedent and a, a box opening, but I can tell you what they do in Pennsylvania is that uh, the um, – the if the if the home owner of the bank the bank of the box is deceased, then uh, mm. that triggers a whole different thing that would have happened with Dan Wilson. Is that yeah. the uh, the state wants to have a representative of the revenue department there so they can inventory the box and uh, make sure what is in that box so the state department of revenue can get its share in inheritance tax. And uh, it used to be that the state would send an inspector around and you have to wait and schedule it. And then later on, mm-hmm. they loosened the law that um, the branch manager of the bank was act, was allowed to act as the revenue department inspector. But yeah, th- th- there's a special level of scrutiny for uh, mm-hmm. you know, in, in revenue tax purposes for a decedent's box. But that wouldn't be so all that was in, in there case. was the jewelry and the and there was no money or anything. The jewelry that belonged to my mother, which I proved, and the will. And yeah, he was trying they were trying to do that also, I, I understand. Which is really scary. So Dan what makes Dan Dan was very smart in his own way. Yes. So who gets the money if if they if they wins the case and how is it divided up? I mean, Dan was was very clever, and we're not going to say, you know, what happened to him or didn't happen to him. No. Okay, well, okay, there's there's money and there's money. First of all, there's the money that Dan presumably took out in cash on the day he disappeared. Okay, and that's that's to one side. Um, What... What the, the case is about that, that is investigating is investigating the, the, the wrongful death action is, um, you know, Dan's survivors have sued for his life insurance money. He had a life insurance mm. policy with his law mm-hmm. firm, and um, the way this works in in businesses is that um, you know a partner leaves the firm, and they have a they own a share of the firm. Like, say, if the firm is worth $200,000 and um, you have two partners, and if one of them leaves, that person should get $100,000, um, you know, when when they go. That's that's being paid their share, and then the firm goes on, the surviving partner owns 100%. Uh, it's called a buyout. And um, so, yeah, the firm buys insurance, so there'll be money available for the buyout. And um, mm. that's what's going on here. Um, there, Dan uh, was insured for, uh, you know, insured. And uh, when the money is is paid, uh, the money the money's paid to his law firm to fund the buyout. But it goes immediately. But it just turns right over to Dan. It's it it just passes through so that the insurance money will go to Dan's family. So so Dan's family wants to get the money. Uh, so they so, you know that's that's how they get their. That's how they get Dan's partnership share through the insurance money. So that's and the insurance company is fighting this case tooth and nail. They say, uh, you know, look, we don't think Dan is dead. We think this is an insurance mm-hmm. scam, and um, you know, we're, we're not paying. You show show us a body, and uh, or at least a police finding that at least is a homicide rather than a disappearance. 
and we'll talk money, but we're we're not going to pay, you know, you, pr- prove it. And that's what this upcoming hearing is supposed to be about. Well, what happens when, for example, in a case like that, where the insurance company, whatever, they pay the they pay the the family, and then yeah. the husband wants something called elective share. I learned a lot. Trust me. Yeah. And yes. somehow, you somehow, and because the person feels that they were the person's a millionaire, doesn't need the money, yeah. but just a spite, takes money from both children that he didn't yes. really need. And then I heard that select that that is called elective share because he felt that he wasn't given enough. So in this particular case, if they didn't get the money, I guess they could have figured out another way. That's really sad. So the chief okay, of well, police does he help yeah. Dave? Uh, yes, he does. He's, he's initially a little suspicious of Dave. I mean, because Dave's from Philadelphia, and uh, this chief of police is from uh, the central part of the mm. state, and there is this, there's this mutual suspicion between Philadelphia and uh, the mid-state that is, um, uh, you know, ca- kind of a theme of, of the books. Is that? Uh, but uh, the chief eventually warms to Dave, and uh, he knows he's sincere and um, does review the old police records um, uh, with him about uh, uh, about what happened. So, Wayne, I'm looking at this whole thing here. Now, who is Lisa, and what did he want her to say? And tell us about the car and how he describes what happened. Sure. Okay, Lisa Wilson is uh, Dan's sister, okay? And she mm-hmm. used to be a nurse in Los Angeles, and she uh, came, uh, she, she's from, Lisa and uh, Dan are originally both from Philadelphia, but she had moved some years ago out to Los Angeles, and she was a surgical nurse out there. Um, she is, uh, of course, she, she's the only sibling, and uh, she's, she's the one who's, kind of pushing uh, her mother, who's the only one other family member left alive, to, to see, mm-hmm. see through this presumption of death case and, uh, you know, get the money and get this uh, cleared up. And um, so she's, um, so you know, David um, uh, meets with her, and uh, she's, um, okay, you, you have to keep in mind that, like, Dave is a, is mm-hmm. a late comer to the party. She had originally hired this lawyer, Mark Laux, who hired Dave, mm-hmm. uh, and, and she's been working with Mark Laux and the Shriner Agency, and she's waiting for the case to come up, and um, you know she figures that uh, she she assumes it's in good hands, and then all of a sudden now it's like the Friday before the hearing, and mm-hmm. uh, instead of Laux uh, preparing her to testify and the Shriner Agency giving her this nice big file that proves everything. It's like there's this total stranger who's now taking over the case. And Lisa's trying to put a good face on this, but she's like she's about as unhappy as you would be if this happened to you in a case of your, your own. Yeah. Like, what's going on here? Yes. And um, so uh, she talks to Dave and um, their initial meeting is kind of an ex- gives me an excuse as the writer to uh, mm. introduce Dave's background about okay, it's because there's been a couple of references in the book to uh, he was disbarred, but we yeah. haven't explained it yet. And so now it's like now we can tell 
as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story. And you find out, like, yeah, Dave did something wrong, but it's the kind of thing people do wrong that you can understand. Now, before I forget, I don't want to forget, the 24th, this I was like in shock, the former Chief Justice of the Trade Commission, Judge Stephen Granger, will be here with his debut novel, Secret Deceit. It's really good. On the 25th, I had to do this over because, thank God, Blockhook is working. The sound was bad, and The Last Horseman has to be done over. And on Monday, New York Times author Peter James will be there with Stop Them Dead. That is just January. Now, for anybody that has a book coming out, you better tell me because February is practically gone. March is almost gone. I can't believe April has got a lot. And May also has a lot, an awful lot. And I'm very excited. I'm almost done reading D.P. Lyle's um, new one is coming out in August, Unbalanced. And when you get a D.P. Lyle novel, you don't wait till August to read it. It's really great. So that's just some of what's coming up in, in here. So if you have a new book coming out, people, you better tell me before it's too late. So who, what, who is Joe Franklin and what role does he play? And how did he describe Dan? People describe Dan. Sure. Um, okay. Oh, yeah. Getting back to okay, Dan. As to answer your second question yeah. first, Dan, um, yeah. uh, kind of a slightly built, nondescript guy, uh, wore glasses, um, the kind of person who just doesn't stand out very much. And I just just thought it was more fun to have. Instead of like, oh, he was six foot nine with a bushy red beard, you know, and a barrel mm-hmm. chest. It's like, no, no. It's like you're looking for someone who like is the kind of person you pass on the street all day long and don't notice. It is like just to, a little bit of sense of humor to make Dave's uh, quest mm-hmm. even more difficult uh, th- than it is. Uh, to to get back to the Shriner Agency and John Franklin, mm-hmm. uh, the Shriner Agency. Is um, doesn't exist in real life, but it's um, in my world. It's the they are the premier detective and security agency in Philadelphia. That's that's mm. where you go if you want to to get anything done. Uh, they they have all the big clients sewn up, and um, uh, Dave is one of the um, you know the, the small time investigators who kind of picks up the crumbs of the work they don't want. Uh, Dave Garrett refers to the situation as Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And uh, mm-hmm. so that that's uh, – and, and so he's very jealous of the Shriner Agency, but he respects that they do good work. And um, uh, Franklin, in, in this book, is, uh, Franklin is um, just kind of a voice on the phone in a single conversation. But um, – in the in some other books later on, he will wind up being uh, a much more important character. But for right now, we're just um, his job is well. The, the the Shriner Agency was doing this case. Lauks had hired them mm. and had you know dug up all sorts of things, which now Dave has access to. Uh, but they've dropped the case very suddenly. That's why Lauks is stuck on Friday morning with no investigator mm. uh and um and that david is right off the bat smells of like they were frightened off the case that this is organized crime and he yeah he would wants no part of that 
So um, uh, that's um, yeah, that, that's kind of well. The other thing is that using having the Shriner agency in the book, kind of, kind of like having them in the book first, it allows me to um, take the Shriner report, and uh, they will they will have the benefit of their report. Like he's got all the mm. Dan Wilson is not a name. Dave can you know find himself a. A quiet place in the subway to sit and read for a while, and he can read the Shriner report, and he gets all the. It's a way of giving the reader a lot of compressed information about Dan, and kind of brings the reader up to speed on everything Shriner had found out. So it uh, kind of instead of having to do it piecemeal, we can kind of shortcut a lot of the preliminary investigation. I wish I could do some of that, but. My next book, Mirror, Mirror Image 2, will just destroy some more people the same, in a different way. Ah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I'm going to start it off with somebody in the mirror talking about it and see what happens after that as soon as I figure it out. But there was a statement in the book that I'm wondering what this means. It says, Dan Wilson was a shadow. Why did he disappear? That was a statement that, that I have that you wrote. Yep. Well, that, that's true. It's like the, the thing – this was based on a real-life case, a real uh, mm-hmm. disappearance, uh, presumption of death. And what fascinated me about the real-life case and what kept it in my mind until I got around mm-hmm. to turning it into my own book was we all, as, as lawyers and as human beings, you all think like, well, if we just had enough information, it would be clear. Okay, like, mm. one more fact, one more witness, one more piece of paper, and then, ah, it'll all unravel. But the real case, and this case, is like the more you learn every single fact, every matter of detail, it's just more mm. ambiguous. Uh, everything, yes, yes, that could mean this, and it could mean that. Um, that, 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 that Dan takes all his money out of the bank. Does that mean that he was uh, in fear of something? Or no, maybe, no, well, maybe. And equally, maybe he had decided it was time and he was going to take that money and go do something and stage a disappearance. So I'd like every, all the clues point equally towards a staged disappearance and a real killing, and you, you just wind up in a, in a mental circle. You can't, you can't mm. break out of it. That was what intrigued me about the story. That that's interesting because basically, I know a lot of people. I'm sure do that. They put the money in a safety deposit box. Nobody knows it there. You take it out and you don't have to pay taxes or anything. No one's going to know, unless you tell somebody that it's there. And the people in the bank are not allowed to go through the boxes to see what's in them. I take right. it they're not supposed to do that. But then you never no, know. Well, that's right. That's that's why I I had fun with the savings deposit thing yeah. because that's such a. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, I mean, it, it could have been money. I mean, it could have been something else. It, it could have been anything. And it's like it's just this. It's like the but the fact that it was taken out at all at this mm. time has to mean something. <laughs> Maybe. Now, here's a link. Yeah, I'm looking at this paper because I don't want to say anything that was in yellow, but the yellow I found the yellow was hard to find, but I have it here. So yeah. he, what does he learn from the chief of police when they go to the county line auto salvage? And yeah. what does it have to do? Why was he 
He gets blindsided, poor thing. I know how that feels. Yeah. Yes. People blindsided. Well, yeah, you well, don't even see. You don't even see it coming. Sometimes you think you do, but you don't. That's right. Well, well the the county line auto salvage thing. Um, um, he had um, David had had. Um, he 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 goes to the the car is still around. The police exactly haven't had it in an yeah. impound for the last seven years, but they haven't junked it out either. And, um, yeah, you know, it, it's it's funny because I was rereading the book just the other day getting ready for mm-hmm. this virtual tour. And um, one of the things, okay, the book was written in 1989. <laughs> this is before oh, wow. DNA stuff. And um, uh, the the uh, chief said, uh, Dave Garrett asked the chief, why haven't they just junked out the car? You've been over it. You've taken the fingerprints and the blood samples. Why why are you still bothering with mm. the car? And he says, well, the state police figured that they might be working on something that they can do more later on. <laughs> I said, oh my God, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I predicted DNA evidence. <laughs> That that's amazing because you could imagine if they had DNA evidence in the matter of Jack the Ripper or any of yep. these ma- major serial killers, and they never caught Jack the Ripper. I know that. No, um, no, they did but not. I find I find these I find it fascinating because some of the some of the crazy programs I do watch are you know serial killers. My husband loves those programs and all sorts of stuff like that. So you wonder like you can learn a lot from even watching Cold Justice and write write a great book. Because they're interesting oh, oh, too. Yeah. Oh yes. So, the, um, but the, I, I can, uh, without giving away too much, I can uh, yeah. talk about what he finds at the auto salvage yard. Because he goes over the car, and the car has the bullet holes that 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 someone drove by the car and fired a number of forty-five slugs into the car. Some went into the hood. Some went through the the, the winch, through the driver's window. Uh, you know, somebody drove up alongside the car. You know, and from the car's left, fired all these shots, and that's all. You know, that's all clear. The the forensic evidence, such as it was, it's all consistent with a drive-by shooting on a moving car. Okay, um, and um, but uh, the and but but here, the one thing that he does discover is that um, he goes and he looks at the taillights. And um, the, the, he, he looks at the taillights of this car, and he finds that a small hole has been punched in one of the taillights, mm. which means that if the, the, that car now, when the lights come on at night, is going to show a little teeny white light out the back. It's going to be very distinctive. And um, so, and so David points, finds this, and explains it to Lisa, and he says, "Well, this is pretty important because it means, you know, uh, well, if it happened at the time, if this was there at the time, you know, Dan was killed or shot or whatever mm-hmm. happened that night, then, um, you know, that means like somebody was following him. It wasn't an accident. They had." They had spiked the headlight, the taillight, and had uh, you know they could easily follow him, uh, you know, and, and uh, you know pick him off at their leisure. And it's like um, so that okay, this this 
this kind of indicates a third party was definitely involved and it's not a disappearance. Now, of course, now we don't know when that when that little hole appeared. You can't be sure, but it sure sets you thinking. Um, and then a little later on that evening, when David and Lisa are doing some driving on an errand together, um, Dave happens to look at the taillight of his car, and someone has done that to his car. Mm. So that kind of kind of sets up. Uh, sets up the next, kind of ratchets the action up a little bit, shall we say. Well, we're not going to tell you, tell them, but when you read the ending of the book, you're going to go, oh my God, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> that that That's true, right? You have to really seriously. Well, so, I, I will tell you how I, I came to write this book. Uh, I okay. have read an, Ag- an Agatha Christie. Okay, uh, one of her Miss Marvel books set in her the village she uses, mm. and it was, it was very charming. And I was going along, and you know, I, I thought I was paying close attention, and then I got to the line that said, "Barbara saw Nigel kissing Susan in the belfry." Okay, mm. and I realized. I didn't know who Barbara was. I didn't know who Nigel was. I didn't know who Susan was. And I couldn't remember. And I had no idea of what is. Are Nigel and Susan married? Are they brother and sister? Is Barbara married to Nigel? And I mean, I realized I had completely lost the thread mm. of this book. That Agatha had thrown so many characters at me. I had just. It, it's like you know. It's like you, you pour a quart of water into a pint bottle. It's just like it was just everywhere. Nigel and Susan and Barbara. And so I decided I was going to write a book with the absolute minimum number of characters. I mean, I suppose you could have written it with a, maybe without a couple of the minor characters, but like I wanted to write a book with very, very few characters, which means you've got to hide the solution very carefully. That's all I'll say. All I could tell you is that this book was very nice because they weren't familiar, but I read a book recently that had 450 characters. I'm serious. Oh, you poor thing. And I had, <laughs> not only was I, thank God, the person had a character thing in the front, and I have a very good memory, and I'm saying, I have to read a book with 450 characters. I had to review it. They were shocked that I got it right. I was shocked I got it right. I usually do get it right. But 450 characters? I mean, anything more than five or six is like, okay. But when it goes to 10 or 20, or t- and it's like, I have to remember all these people? So you sort of like yes, summarize, but you don't write everything. So before we end, okay. How did you create the last scene without giving it away? And what about, what about Dave? Where does he wind up next? Okay. Because this conclusion wanted- was like, huh? I wanted the book to end on a note of reconciliation and hope, I guess is the best way I can put it. I thought it was important that it tells you what kind of a man Dave is. And I think that's the most important takeaway from the whole series. And um, where the series goes from here is that, okay, um, there's uh, after a couple of books in which Lisa does not appear – Lisa is going to come back into the series and become David's uh, assistant. 
uh, sidekick, if mm. you will, uh, and um, uh, and um, you know, and and uh, they, 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 uh, what can I say? <laughs> it goes on from there. <laughs> and uh, I, I'm so, how many October books are out already? Okay, September, is this is uh, this January first? Is February is February out already? Yes, yes. Um, the, the first six books were published by Walker, and then I uh, resumed the, the series uh, through Amazon. And uh, the, the last one out is uh, September Wars, and uh, October Bride will be out uh, sometime later this year. So I want yeah, September because it's my birthday. Ah, and the, 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 and the, by the way, the my birthday. Ah, the books can be read. I mean, uh, somebody can pick up any one of the books, and you'll get enough backstory yeah. to be able to follow it as a standalone. You got, you got to do that. Well, are you going to do another tour with with Gina? And then, they're, <laughs> they're, I mean, they're just, they're they're, ama- they're amazing for what they're doing for me. It's like you make my books. My book is really good, but they made a banner and everything, and I'm like so proud. And of course, on February 5th, I'm going to do some bragging rights because I have the right. And yes. I got a lot of a lot of people, but the problem is, is that my family doesn't read. So I was very oh. honored the other night when my niece called me and said, "Where's my copy of Mirror Image?" I said, "It's about time somebody asked for it." But yeah, <laughs> I, 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 this are you gonna are you gonna do another tour? They're fantastic, as far as I can see. Well, thank you, thank you very much. No, I'm I'm going to I'm going to finish uh, finish the the twelve months of the year. And I think at that okay. point, the, the, their story will have been told. And then you're going to have to do the days of the week. And the, <laughs> the days of the week. Oh, well, no, I have Or, or I the have hours of the pro- day. I have several I've other read non- books like that. projects. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's great because I need to get the, I need to read all of these because I need to know what happens. You see, this is okay. the problem. When I start a series and I like it, that's not good. So <laughs> everyone... <laughs> This is great. Thank you very much. And I just hope that um, we're having a little problem in Hartsdale. They're trying to close the Rite Aid down the block. And I've been, you know, blogging and petitioning and all sorts of stuff. So anybody that's in Hartsdale, please sign the petition because we don't want Rite Aid to close. It leaves us with nothing, not even a pharmacy to walk to, nothing for people that can't drive. But The January Corpse is a fantastic book. Where can we find everything that you've written? Thank you very much. Are you on Amazon, Kobo, um, Books a Million, everywhere? Uh, Amazon would be the best. You can order them through Amazon, or you can go to my website, and there's a click-through to order books through the website if you want to do that. You'd be amazed at where you find yourself. I didn't even know that my radio shows on Spotify, Audacity, and a whole bunch of other Apple iTunes, YouTube, and everywhere. So you could be surprised. You Google yourself. You're gonna find. Yeah, it's this goes straight to Spotify. The minute I the minute I uh, end the show and stuff, Spotify takes it and probably and puts it out for me. I don't have to do anything. So thank okay. you so much, and okay. I hope I get well, you next you. one because. And this has been great, everybody. It's a beautiful day outside. It's 19 degrees. It's not that bad. Have a great day and bye. <laughs>